Hey, I'm Caleb Howard, and this is Tales from Sacred Texts. We tell Bible stories in a sarcastic and informative manner, ridicule the stupidity of the Apocrypha, narrate Christian history and mythology in a way that keeps you on the edge of your seat, and discuss religion with our best storytelling foot forward. If you're not a Christian, perfect. This podcast is critical of the establishment and is told from a perspective that a non-Christian can easily appreciate if they want to learn anything about Christianity or simply hear a good story. We'll be doing the story of Esther, the Jewish queen of Persia who saved her people from genocide. It's a story in the Old Testament, and it's the only book of the Bible that never mentions God. It's a story that's meant to show what God does in the background to keep his people safe. There's really not much to lead this episode with, so we'll go right ahead and get into the story. Haman was insane. There's really no other way to put it. Every day, he would walk around the palace, commanding that everyone bow down and worship him. Being servants in the court of an ancient king, most everyone agreed that quiet acquiescence was the better part of wisdom and knelt down before Haman. Apparently, the king knew about this. Unlike me, who, if I had a servant demanding that everyone worship him like a god, would say, come on, this is ridiculous. The king thought that this was great. He even made a law saying that everyone had to bow down and worship Haman. Because of course he did. Tyrants scratching each other's back was exactly what the ancient world was all about. Unfortunately, the questionable wisdom of doing whatever Haman wanted didn't extend to one person in the king's court. Mordecai, who was a Jew and a servant of Yahweh, thought that bowing down before some megalomaniac tyrant wasn't really compatible with his faith in God. So he just didn't bow. Apparently, Haman didn't notice this. I'm not exactly sure how, but he didn't. Probably, Mordecai worked in some corner or on some side of the palace that Haman didn't really visit that often. And somehow, Mordecai always found himself absent when Haman came around. But his fellow servants, being snitches, went to complain to Haman. The Bible says they did it out of curiosity to see what he would do because he was a Jew and he said that he only worshipped Yahweh. But given the attitude toward Jews that the book of Esther conveys existed at that time, they probably wanted to do him in. Haman wasted no time in finding out whether this report was true. When he saw Mordecai refusing to bow, he was furious. One man refused to worship him. This was unthinkable. Haman angrily swept from the room, muttering something. Mordecai breathed a sigh of relief, thanking God that he had not been killed on the spot. He felt differently in the next couple of days. Haman stormed into the throne room, still fuming. The king looked up. His tyrant buddy was having a tough time. Are you okay there, Haman, he asked. Haman was not okay. It was the Jews. Wait, like literally all of them are involved in some huge conspiracy to destroy the world? Haman nodded. The king shook his head. He did not expect that one. He had been, like, super sarcastic because the idea of some racial conspiracy to destroy the world was, like, the dumbest thing he'd ever heard of. It's all about the Benjamins, Haman said. The Jews controlled the world's money supply and, oh, also, yeah, they had dual loyalty. They were loyal to Israel more than to their own country. Haman backtracked. I mean, if Israel were even a country. It shouldn't be, he shook his head. They should give all their land to the nearby tribes who are desperate to do them in. The king held up his hand. You're just using 21st century anti-Semitic arguments. That's super anachronistic. 
Heyman shrugged. Well, the people in the 21st century were just using his arguments. People who hate random people groups aren't super creative, they just come up with really dumb ideas and stick with them. Also, the whole thing about Israel not being a country? That was because he had a final solution to this whole problem. He was going to wipe out all the Jews. The king exploded. You can't be serious. If nothing else, it'll cost a lot of money and make a lot of people upset with us. Like seriously, I'm way too lazy to mastermind an evil plot. Haman held up a finger. Listen, I'm masterminding the evil plot. You're just giving consent. Also, want a bunch of money? The king's attitude totally changed. Money? This was great. Despite having a ton of money, he needed more. He was an ancient king and therefore unsurprisingly okay with killing a bunch of people. That's just how it went, honestly. The king removed his signet ring from his finger. It was the ancient equivalent of signing documents. Instead of signing them, though, the king would stamp them with his ring to prove who the orders had come from. He passed the ring to Haman. Do whatever you want with it, just bring it back, he said nonchalantly. Haman chuckled. His evil plan was getting off to a great start. Flashback to about a year ago. The king was depressed. He had engaged in some light wife murdering recently, but that really wasn't why he was sad. It was a regrettable situation, really. He had thrown a six-month-long party with an open bar, which was clearly a super great idea. At the end of the party, he'd asked his wife, Vashti, to come and dance in front of his drinking buddies, and she had declined. He was furious, but he had half a mind to forgive her until he consulted his princes. The spokesman for the princes, a guy named Mimucan, was disgusted. If the queen disobeyed her husband and got away with it, then what would happen when any other man in the kingdom asked his wife to do something she didn't want to do? What if she didn't want to cook dinner? Clearly, she needed to be made an example of. When everyone hears what happened, Mimikin said, all the wives will be very good to their husbands. This seemed like a really good idea until the king started to get lonely. You could argue that it was his fault for killing his wife, but really, these are way too modern ideas. He was an ancient king and was going to do exactly what he wanted. His servants, eager to offer some helpful advice, started thinking of a plan. This was going to be elaborate. He missed Vashti, didn't he? Well, he could easily get someone much hotter. Anyone would be happy to marry him, Reed. He could force anyone to marry him. So forget all that amateur stuff where you look around your city for a few attractive women. He was going to send servants out to all 127 provinces of Persia, have them pick the most attractive women, and then make all the women spend an entire year beautifying themselves. After that, he would pick the hottest woman out of those to be his wife. Seeing as it was ancient society, not one person was going to be the one to tell the king that this was absolute overkill. Instead, they praised the idea and how great of an idea it was, Mordecai, remember the Jewish guy that was definitely not worshipping Haman as a god, was not happy about this degree. He had a very attractive niece who had adopted as his own daughter when both of her parents died. He did not want her to be forcibly taken to the palace to be the wife or concubine of these two lunatics, King Xerxes I and Haman. Seeing as he worked at the palace and knew how anti-Semitic these people could be, he warned Esther not to tell anyone that she was a Jew. If they found out, he didn't even want to think about what would happen. He had already changed her name from Hadassah, a Hebrew name, to Esther, a Persian one, to help disguise her a little bit. Apparently, the king liked Esther more than the other women who were forced to become concubines because of course they were. After spending the night with her, he was convinced. He set the crown on her head, and she was made queen. 
About the time that Esther finally became queen, after the 12 months of beautification procedures, Haman was making his super evil plot with the king. What does one do for 12 months of beautification procedures? Don't ask me, I'm not sure what they're doing in the bathroom for 20 minutes. Just kidding. I'm the one who takes forever to get ready. My friends would probably say that I take 12 months. As the messengers went throughout the kingdom, proclaiming the terrible news, people everywhere were astonished. While some rejoiced, a large number mourned. Meanwhile, the king and Haman sat down to drink and celebrate their planned genocide. Because while the king might have been hesitant at first, the standing policy for genocide in the ancient world was that as long as it wasn't you, throw a party and sit back with popcorn. One of Esther's maids rushed up to her. It was Mordecai, and he had absolutely gone crazy. He was weeping and wailing, wearing torn clothes and garments of ritual mourning. He wasn't allowed into the palace, as only happy people were allowed to be in the presence of the king and queen, but several times he went as far as the front gate. Esther, apparently, decided the best course of action would be to send Mordecai a change of clothes. However, Mordecai refused the garments. Don't you know what's going on? He shouted at the messenger. The messenger arrived back in the palace, thoroughly puzzled, and by this point, Esther was too. She decided to send a eunuch that the king had given her to check the whole situation out. Because yes, society was messed up that the king would just give women eunuchs. Mordecai handed the eunuch a copy of the king's decree. He shook his head. This. Well, this was rough. Mordecai explained to the eunuch that as Esther was so close to the king, maybe she could convince him to change his mind. Esther was adamant that she could not do this. The king would kill anybody who even walked into his throne room uninvited. Like, this was just one of the classic ancient world overkill measures. Mordecai shook his head. And what would happen if she didn't? Did she understand what was going on? The policy we hear was apparently, kill all the Jews. She was Jewish, right? As much as she'd hit it beforehand, someone with as many rivals as her should be careful. Someone would surely find out. And seriously, even if Esther was safe, these guys were trying to kill her entire race of people. Esther shook her head. She had a modern-day argument for this one. They weren't trying to kill her entire race of people, just the ones who wanted a country for themselves and some freedom. If they were content to be slaves and just open their gates to be massacred, well, maybe they'd keep the nice one alive. Just kidding. Esther told Mordecai that she was willing to risk her life. She couldn't abandon her people now. Maybe her being chosen as queen had been for a reason, to give her the chance to save her people from certain death. Meanwhile... Haman, as always, is up to something super devious, classic Haman, but that will be right after this. So Haman goes to his wife and friends and asks them what he should do. Their advice is to build the biggest gallows in the entire country, and then ask the king's permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows so that he can flaunt the death of Mordecai to the entire kingdom. A wonderful idea in his mind. Unfortunately for Haman, that night, the king can't sleep and asks that the records of the kingdom be read to him. Kind of how, like, we might drift off to sleep during a boring college lecture. But it just so happened that the section of the record the servants chose to read, Amateurs, was the story of the assassination attempt on the king's life. Because I'm pretty sure the king couldn't fall asleep to a story like that. The attempt went like this. Two guys... Big Fan and T-Resh had dumb names and an even dumber plan. Just go up and stab the king, but talk about their plan in front of other servants. 
Mordecai, hearing them talk, went directly to the king and warned him of what the two idiots were planning to do. The king had apparently been so shaken up that he forgot to reward Mordecai for saving his life. Wait, we haven't rewarded the guy? The king asked. No, the servant said. We just double-checked the records. Definitely haven't done anything for him yet. At that moment, Haman walked in. He had built the gallows, and he was just coming to ask the permission to hang Mordecai when the king asked him a question. There's a guy who I'd love to honor. What should I do for him? Haman, thinking that the king was doing the classic advice tradition of, hey, what would you do if you were in this very odd and specific situation that I'm definitely not in, and assumed the king was trying to honor him. So he spun a fantasy. His wildest dreams come true. A wonderful idea, the king gushed. Now do that for Mordecai. A wave of anger and horror rushed over Haman, but what could he do? An order was an order, so Haman ended up running around the city, shouting praises to Mordecai, as the entire city laughed at the humiliation of Haman. Because the simple rule of authoritarian governments is that as much as people may pretend to respect you, they're not going to be sad when they see you fall. Haman's wife and friends, classic stupid racists, weren't much help either. They basically said that, wow, this was a sign that the Jews were going to win. But Haman's luck began to turn again when Esther invited him to a fancy dinner with just herself and the king. They said that she even walked before the king without being invited, risking death just to ask the king and Haman to this dinner. Wow. Things were looking up. Well, they were until they weren't. When the king asked Esther what she desperately wanted, she wasn't risking her life to ask the king to lunch, and they both knew that. Esther explained that her people were about to be slaughtered. Clueless, the king roared. And who would do such a thing? This bastard, Haman, Esther replied. Haman jumped up in shock. He hadn't known the king was a Jew. It all made sense now. All about the Benjamins. As the king stepped outside to pace in fury, Haman threw himself onto Esther, begging for mercy. But to the king, it looked like he meant to sexually assault her, which put him into a bigger frenzy. The king decided to impale Haman on top of the gallows that had been built for Mordecai in a final twist of irony and bitterness. And thus, Haman died. But the law still said the Jews were to be exterminated, and the Persians, exhibiting a surprising amount of hubris, forbade any law from being changed. So the king decided to enact an equivalent of the Second Amendment, giving the Jews the rights to possess assault swords and spears and bows to defend themselves from government-endorsed slaughter. The Jews celebrated, and their enemies were terrified. The Jewish fortunes had turned just like that. Some marveled, and others became Jews for good luck. The only people who turned out to kill the Jews were hardcore anti-Semites, and they got utterly decimated. Haman's family, who apparently didn't learn from the fate of their arrogant relative, ended up going out to kill the Jews and got wiped out. The Jews then took the anti-Semites' possessions for themselves, becoming richer and more powerful than before, and much better off that now the anti-Semites who were willing to kill the Jews were all dead. A truly wonderful thing. The Jews even created a holiday to memorialize the event, Purim, a holiday that they still celebrate, eating a Hamantash pastries, which are supposed to resemble Haman's pockets, which contained the money that Haman used to pay for the slaughter of the Jews. The story of Esther is an incredible story that shows God's work is not always done in the open. Instead, God works behind the scenes, through individuals and through governments, to protect those people who are loyal to him. There's even evidence that God protects people who aren't particularly loyal, the Jews still in the capital of Persia who had refused to go back to their land when God had commanded them to return. God doesn't ever leave his people alone to suffer a terrible fate, even though it might seem like it sometimes. 
While the Jews may have felt abandoned, and I'm sure they did, when the decree passed, God was working things out in his own way to purge the country of anti-Semites who might want to harm his chosen people. God never leaves the people who follow him alone with nowhere to go, even if he doesn't come roaring in and frightening all the enemies away like we hear about in the stories. Things never happen the same way twice, but anyone can find out what will happen if they stand up and take the adventure that comes to them. Sorry for the Chronicles of Narnia quotes, but they are very apropos here. Anyway, that's all for this time. Next time, we'll be starting out with the Pilgrim's Progress. We'll learn not to follow the person whose very name gives away that he's a bad person. We'll visit the House of Glorified Charades, and we'll duck and dodge Satan's choice snipers on an adventurous journey to heaven. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell your friends about how great this podcast is and how far we've come with season three. I'm really so grateful to each one of you for letting me entertain you all and for listening to these topics that are important and exciting to me and clearly to you as well. I wish you all an amazing weekend and I'll see you next time. As a final side note, we have an Instagram now, Tales from Sacred Texts. Please look up and follow us on Instagram and send me a message if you want because I'm happy to respond. Credits to myself, Caleb Howard for music and script writing. Credits to myself for theme music and to Anchor Podcasts and Evoke Music for background music.